So you guys are making it hard on me now. So last week we had Chuck. Now, now we have George. We're, we're running out of people who are eligible to do the readings now because y'all always ruin my introductions. We're going to run out of people pretty soon, just saying. All right, so uh, w- one thing before we dive in, I forgot to mention this at, um, at the uh, announcements, but I did want to throw it out before we left today of um, if you are interested and in a kind of a policy wonk about some of the stuff happening in the United Methodist Church, there is a handout on the way out um, that shows some of the different options that might be happening um, with our big uh, kerfuffle. And just to keep you up to date, the bishops, Council of Bishops, have um, asked the Judicial Council, which is basically our Supreme Court, to look at the constitutionality of five different points um, in the traditional plan. And it's uh, some of them are actually very good, so we'll see what, if anything, comes of that. Uh, but just to keep you up to date with what, uh, with what we've been trying to figure out as a denomination. So, if you were here last week, you might remember that we are, this month, doing a sermon series on Christmas in July. And so, uh, as you remember, we're taking a look at these things, right? We're taking them uh, out of this context that they're normally in, in the, you know, the holiday cheer and all that stuff, in that season, this particular time of our lives, right? We're taking them out of that context so that we can look at them a little bit different, uh, separate from that stuff. And because there's a lot of richness in this set of stories that we often overlook and gets glossed over when we're thinking in terms of seasonal terms or sentimental terms, right? And so we are here trying to tease apart these stories and see what exactly was going on here. What, what types of things were the authors trying to get across about God and Jesus? And, and trying to figure out what relevance, if any, did these stories have for us today? So let's dive in. As, uh, as you heard, this is a passage from a guy named Paul, wrote a letter to a church in Philippi. Um, and when you heard this passage, I would guess you wouldn't immediately think of Christmas. Uh, and yet it has everything to do with Christmas, right? Because what is Christmas? Christmas is celebrating the coming of God into the world, right? And this passage is all about that. I mean, it's zoomed out, right? It's not zoomed into Bethlehem. It's zoomed out to this cosmic scale. But we have this famous passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, And here's one thing that's very interesting about it that you've never heard before. Uh, So most, most scholars are pretty much on board with this being this hymn from quite a bit earlier than Paul. Um, And Paul, so rather than coming up with completely from scratch, this new something, to making up something to try and make his point in his letter, he draws on this existing hymn, which is fascinating, right? Because Paul is our earliest author in the New Testament. So he, if we want to get back as close to the beginning as possible, we look at Paul, but this is even pre-Paul. And so this, uh, this hymn might be able to give us some indication of as early as we can get what types of things the, the nascent Christian movement, the, the Jesus followers, were thinking through of how to make sense of this thing of Jesus coming, of God coming in the form of Jesus, rather. It was the way 
that the earliest people, the earliest Christians, thought about incarnation. So, so just as in our normal language, like if we're using it in everyday speech, right? Uh, incarnation is, is a manifestation of something, right? It, it's con carne, almost literally, right? It's with me, it's in the flesh, right? And so God's incarnation in the world, right? God's taking on flesh and coming into the world was in the form of the person of Jesus, right? And so we could see from very early on, as, as early as this uh, early hymn that we heard today, Jesus' followers were were reflecting on this fact, reflecting on what it meant that Jesus was God in the flesh. And so one of the things that this uh, passage points to is this theological concept of, of kenosis. Don't worry about it, you don't need to know it. But <clears throat> kenosis is a sense of emptying, of, of self-emptying, right? And so for this hymn, at the beginning of the passage, Christ is, right, starts out equal to God, right? Um, but then Christ empties himself of that divinity to come to earth as the human Jesus, right? It's this idea that in emptying yourself, in divesting yourself of those, those privileges that come with being God, right, you do so to put others' needs above your own. And that, that's baked into the very concept of what God is in the first place. It's to empty this divinity of yourself, of those things that you have, those powers that you have. And I mean, by definition, right, so there's this gap between God and humans, right? Like, I mean, the human condition is finitude. It's, it's limitation. It's imperfection. It's death, right? And so by definition, God is in a completely different class, right? God is infinite, God is perfection, or rather, perhaps even God is beyond perfection, right? And so notice this. Because of these fundamental differences between God and humanity, in order to more fully create a relationship, it meant that God had to try and bridge that unspannable gap between humanity and divinity. So God voluntarily took on, this passage says, took on imperfection, took on finitude, took on death, these trappings of human condition, those things that we least like about being human, right? The very things that separate humanity from divinity, God took on those things voluntarily in order to bridge that gap that could not be bridged in order to be among us, in order to experience what it is like to live in the human condition, to become a bridge between humanity and divinity. And that all is packed in one little hymn, the first quarter of this little hymn, actually, showing how Paul, or rather a community before Paul, gives us a window into how they thought about incarnation, about Jesus being God coming in the flesh. And notice how radical this thought is, right? Because especially in the ancient world, but I mean, still today though, don't get me wrong, people had this particular conception about God, right? You've, you've heard this before, I'm sure. It's this idea of this foreboding, vengeful God, right? Of, uh, imagine maybe like a volcano, right? Ready to explode at any moment with this fiery wrath, 
right? You've heard this before. Right? Just God has this extreme amount of absolute power just coursing through God's veins, right? And your job, oh, intrepid human, is to make sure the power does not get directed at you, right? And so you offer sacrifices and stuff to try and pacify this God, to, to get it to be okay enough with you that it doesn't completely destroy you, right? It doesn't smite you dead. It's a very foreboding picture, right? Very, very negative. Your relationship with God is fundamentally rooted in terror. How can I make it so that uh, any sort of relationship you have with God, right, is all trying to make it so that God won't destroy you, right? Not an actual relationship in any meaningful sense of the word, right? It's cowering before God, But notice that this is not how this hymn in this passage talks about God. It has a different way of looking at things, right? In this hymn we have, it's this picture of God craving relationship, craving intimacy, to such a degree that God would give up those very aspects of God's self that inhibited that. But notice as well, notice this as well. It's not like... God just ran into this problem of the human divine divide, right? It's not like God was like, oh, wow, didn't expect that, (laughs) right? I need to come up with a solution. I I don't really want to, but I guess I have to. Uh, Stupid humans, right? Their finitude, and oh, man, you know, I guess I have to get rid of my divinity now, right? It's not like God had to scramble to find a plan B, right? Sure, yeah, if God had God's druthers, then probably humanity wouldn't, you know, have fallen into sin and need redemption, all that good stuff. But it's not like because of our screwing up, we forced God to come up with something new to patch the problems. No, because this this self-emptying, this coming into more full relationship is consistent with God's very nature, which is self-giving, right? Within God's very self, God is self-giving because self-giving draws you into ever closer, ever more intimate relationship with another. And that's exactly what God has going on within God's very self because this is the Trinity, right? This is, God isn't just in relationship with humanity, Right? It's not just that God enters into some relationship, but no, God is perfect relationship itself. Right? Built into the very design of God right, are these relationships between Father and the Son, and the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Father. Right? And, and, and it's not like we have three gods. Right? It's all just one God. Super confusing, I know. Don't worry about it. So God makes relationships happen because within God's very self, God is relationship. God is these relationships between the three persons within God. It's, um, it's this theological concept called perichoresis, right? It's, it's this idea that the different persons of the Trinity, they dance with each other. Right? They're intertwined in lockstep. It's this beautiful relationship, this image of a God as a perfectly synchronized dance flowing in and out of one another in synchronization with them. And that image is so different from that of the all-powerful God who's going to smite you down if you don't do it right, is it not? Right? Before whom you should cower in fear. 
And so think about that. If God in God's very self is this dance between the persons, if God in God's very self is relationship, you, you really only enter into relationship, more fully enter into relationship by subsuming your own ego, right? Considering the other's needs, even when it's not to your advantage. Giving something of yourself to help the other. So then, why did Christ come and die on the cross and come and take flesh, right? Incarnation, right? In this act of self-giving, self-emptying, of giving up God's divinity to enter into humanity, God seeks to restore a fractured relationship with us. God is giving of God's self to perfect this relationship. And so like God... We too are called to enter into these circles of care and mutual interdependence and self-giving and relationship. Ultimately, self-emptying, self-giving is what helps you draw closer to be more intimate, to be more profound relationship with others around you. Right? It's giving up your ego. It's giving up your self-interest for the sake of the other for the sake of being able to more fully relate to the other as a full human being, as a, as a subject, not an object, right? And so moving toward perfect human relationship as well is this sense of emptying one's self-interest for the sake of the other, to draw into more intimate relationship with them. And these are the kinds of images that this hymn that we read about today evokes for us. Doesn't show God as a wrathful, vengeful, punitive God who just lowers over us absolute power. No, God's doing something very different with his power here. God's giving it up to become in even closer relationship. God gives of God's self, voluntarily sets aside the trappings of divinity, and entered into humanity for the purpose of loving ever more deeply, joining into intimate relationship with humanity and repairing those fractures between humanity and the divine. So may you recalibrate how you think about God and the images that you use when talking about and thinking about and describing God and God's relationship with humanity and yourself. And may you too learn what it looks like to embody this idea of self-giving in your own relationships in the world. May it be so.